welcome to the School of Laughs podcast, brought to you by SchoolofLaughs.com. Whether you're an aspiring comedian, a part-time pro, or a speaker who wants to become funnier, this is the podcast for you. We'll break down tools, tips, and techniques to help you get bigger, better, and more bookable. And now, here's the show. Welcome to the School of Laughs podcast. Rick Roberts here. And today, I've got a nice conversation with Aaron Weber, Nashville comedian. Been here for a few years, doing pretty well. Thought I'd catch up with him, and glad he had time to do that with me. We'll talk about some of the stuff that he's done that's been pretty cool, which includes uh, opening up for some comics in some big venues, as well as uh, being one of the youngest, if not the youngest, comedian to perform on the stage of the Grand Old Opry. Pretty cool stuff. We'll get to that in just a second. They want to say thanks to our Patreon sponsor for this episode, Paul Swan. Thanks, Paul, for continuing to support the podcast through your recurring monthly donations through Patreon. Patreon, a great way to support a podcast, especially in times when comedians aren't doing gigs. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Paul. Uh, I'm not going to joke around too much. Don't have much to say besides. Let's go ahead and get into this episode with Aaron Weber. So I'm sitting across from the Aaron Weber. How's it going, buddy? It's going great, man. Thanks for having me. Hey, might be the last person I get to talk to outside of my house. I know. It's a lot of pressure for me to make it good and interesting. This might be your last ever podcast. That's right. People will be listening to this on repeat for decades to come. <laughs> oh, like man, This I, is what it used to be like. I hope not. Thanks for having me, dude. It's going to yeah, be fun. This will be great. Well, like I was saying a second ago before we clicked on the mic, I know you a little bit, but I really haven't had a chance to just to sit down and talk with you. So it's going to be kind of fun for me to kind of figure out where you came from and all that stuff. Yeah. What, what got you started. So one thing I always like to find out is growing up, what kind of comedy things were on your radar that made you laugh? TV shows, movies, things like that that, were, that just kind of got your attention. I had two comedy specials memorized front to back when I was a kid, and I used to perform them for my friends. I had Brian Regan's Comedy Central special, and I had Kevin James's comedy central special sweat the small stuff and i watched those so many times i had them completely memorized and i like uh school field trips and stuff i'd perform it and that was really my first kind of comedy that i watched and then i was obsessed with it for so long but but it wasn't until like after uh high school that i started to really become a nerd about it right so like there's only so much that was allowed in my house yeah, so like we 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 didn't watch like I we weren't allowed to watch like The Simpsons mm-hmm. growing up. So we would when my mom would go to sleep. Sometimes me and my dad would stay up and watch shows <laughs> like that. But um, we had Bill Cosby himself on DVD, right? That we'd watch every now and then. So it was just the little that I was allowed to listen to. I loved. And then when I got out on my own, I was like, oh, I can watch it all now. So when you started to find that, hey, I can watch anybody, you still probably knew so much about Brian Regan and Kevin James. Mm -hmm. They're still on your hit list of guys to keep in track. But who started to jump on your radar that would have never been allowed in your home or that you would never... I remember when I found Louis C.K. on YouTube. And I was like, this is unlike anything I've ever heard before. And there's something so kind not naughty, but I was like, I I should not be listening to this. Uh But this guy is brilliant. I can't describe why this guy is so brilliant. But I remember sharing him with my friends and being like, "You gotta watch this guy. Like, this is hilarious." Yeah, I was in high school and I found I found that video, and now these kids growing up, they have access to everything, and you know. So I'm curious what their influences are like. Like, they can see everybody 
at any time on the on the internet. So. So you get into high school, you, you like that stuff. You, then you go on to college, and so I know you were at Notre Dame, but what – I didn't know what took you to Notre Dame or what other colleges were in the mix. None, really. I applied early and got in, so I just – that was the only school I applied to. But I had a lot of family go there. My older brother and sister and my dad went there and my aunt, and now I have four cousins that go there. So it was a big family thing Notre Dame was. So once I got in, I was like, I'm done. Yeah. with this application process. Um, so I went there, and um, we had a student stand-up club at Notre Dame called the Student Student Stand-Up, I think it was called. And we had shows like once every other month right after the improv club uh-huh. at, the, at a club on campus. So that's when I started. And I started like my sophomore year. Um. Like I, like I said, I've been a fan for it for a long time, so I've just been writing stuff, never knowing when I would get to do it. And then I found out about this club, so I did it, and um, I probably did like six or seven shows in college, uh-huh. and that's what I thought I was really doing it. You have no idea. Right. You know, you're just like, oh, man, I'm a comic now. I've done six shows in two years <laughs> to a packed room of all your friends. You're like, this is so easy. Right. I'm going to kill it. And then, you know, then you, you're not even prepared for what the real world is after that, but... Uh, yeah, that's when I started. We had a good group of uh, a lot of those guys that were in the group with me are still doing stand up, like well. That's um, great in, in in big cities, Chicago and DC. So they're they're still out there. We had a good group. That's cool. Did you, you know? kick the tires at any comedy clubs at that time? No, there's um there was a there was a funny bone in Mishawaka, but I don't know if that was still there. No, it wasn't around when I was there. There's the Drop Comedy Club in South Bend, which I've done since I've graduated, but mm-hmm. I never did anything. I wasn't even thinking. Yeah. When you're in, especially at Notre Dame, you're just so, the campus, Notre Dame, that's your whole world. And you're not even thinking about outside of that, which is so dumb. I could have driven two minutes down to a real comedy club and hung right. out there, but you just weren't thinking about that. What was your major there? I was a marketing major and a philosophy double major, but uh, I failed a couple classes at the end, and I had, the philosophy is now a minor, I think. I can't even remember <laughs> But, uh, yeah, uh, marketing and philosophy. So I'm using the marketing definitely now a little bit. Yeah. Nothing concrete. I can't remember anything that I learned. Um, But in theory, I'm using the marketing now. Yeah, you're the product now. So you you and your show. That's a good way of thinking about it, yeah. Well, I always think, like, the comedian's a store, the jokes are what's on the shelf, Mm -hmm. and, like, your your opener and your closer, what's in the window. When people walk by, they're like, wow. You know what I'm saying? That's smart. That's more than I learned in four years of college <laughs> right there. That's, uh, well, but it's true. Like, if you had, if you were a storefront, you know, what, what was your, is your closer good enough to put in the window? Is your opener strong enough to get people in the door? Oh. And then what are they buying when they walk through the I'd aisles? be like a speakeasy. Like, you don't even know it's a store when you walk by. <laughs> it's like, man, so many missed You have to know the secret password to get in. <laughs> Yeah. That's I'd be like the Dollar Tree. I'm like, here's here's the joke of the month, Easter joke with the with the inflatable tube man outside, like oh, yeah. a car dealership. I love yeah. the tube guy. Yeah. Whoever invented that was genius. Yeah, you want to so talk great. about a marketing breakthrough? That's genius, man. You know that and the 500 uh, pound gorilla on top of the the roof of these things that like those. Do- those aren't as common anymore, but I still see those. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they make me want to go in. Yeah, I don't case, even know what they're selling, but I want to check it out. The hot air balloon that sometimes floats above a car dealership, those things. I haven't seen that. Yeah, it's like a mini hot air balloon. Oh, that's cool. Well, before I get off of Notre Dame here, yeah. um, 
Do you know of a couple famous comics that came out of Notre Dame? Owen Smith is a L.A. comic that's from there. And then you've, I think we've talked about this other guy who was a big, big writer. What's his name? Jimmy Brogan. Jimmy Brogan, yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't know a whole lot about him, but, I, but I've heard him mentioned. If you want, yeah. I can connect you with him just so you have a... a, a yeah, I'd love known. to. There aren't many. But, you know, he was, uh, you know, worked for The Tonight Show forever. He's, he's just a brilliant mind. Mm-hmm. And, and him and a friend of mine, John Garrett, who is a comic slash speaker who graduated from Notre Dame, they do a show there every year. So it might be something you can get connected to, okay. jump on the show. So yeah. that, after Notre Dame, you moved back to Alabama? To Nashville, actually. So you went... So, you, so I, we, my family moved to Nashville when I was a junior in high school. Ah. Uh-huh. But by the time I got back, uh, my family was gone. So I moved back to Nashville, lived with my parents for a little bit. Then they moved, and then I, I got stuck around. Gotcha. So I was the only one that didn't want to move here, and now I'm the only one still left here. Great. So it's funny how it worked out. Yeah. And so so when you say they're not here anymore, they're, they're physically on the earth, but they're just not in Nashville? Oh, yeah, they moved. My bad. Yeah, they moved back okay. to Alabama. Well, there's been so many, so many. That is weird the way I worded it. Yeah, they've all passed uh, down to Alabama. Well, I, just, I was just thinking about all the different tornadoes that have ripped through <laughs> Alabama and, and Tennessee. I'm like, they might not be with us anymore. Yeah, no, no. They're, they're down in the Mobile area now. They've moved back down there. Okay. So uh, it's just me here. Nashville gotcha. now, yeah. What was that like at first? I mean, you have your four years of independence at college, but then you're left in a city, and you're a, you're like a young adult. You're like, I'm I'm starting to adult here. What do I do? How do like? Did you have your own apartment? Did you split it with some new I friends? I lived so or? right when I when I moved back right away. I lived in my parents' basement until I could find a quote unquote real job. Mm-hmm. But because I graduated late, because I failed a couple classes, that didn't happen right away. So I was waiting tables, and uh, it was a real low point in my life. Now that I think about it. I was just working. I hated waiting tables. I had no prospects of a real job, and I wasn't doing comedy. I didn't even think to do it when I got back, even though I was obsessed with it. And um, so my family moved, and then I moved in with a couple friends and just kind of crashed on their couch until I could find my own apartment. And uh, I got a job in, in, in Brentwood, south of Nashville. And this is actually why I started doing open mics, because the traffic was so bad getting through Nashville every day that it was like an hour and a half commute each way. Oh man. And I said, I need to find something to do after work so I don't have to sit in traffic. So I just started going to open mics in Nashville and that's how it started. Gotcha. Um, any, do you remember some of the open mics that you started? Yeah. Bobby's idle hour on Mondays. I actually started the first day after they did the record breaking the 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 first record breaking Yeah, the first record breaking show. So I showed up to Bobby's Idol Hour and all these comics who had just done an 8-day show were there and they were all tired and it was just kind of a weird vibe, but I kept doing it. So Bobby's and um the East Room on Tuesdays after that and I was I wasn't hitting it very hard at first. I just wanted to kind of try it out. Mm-hmm. I thought I would go in there and kill. You're so naive. Right. I thought I'd go in there and just murder, and they'd be like, who is this guy? Yeah. That's bomb so bad. And I was like, man, none of my jokes make any sense. They're all like, they might do well at Notre Dame on campus, mm-hmm. but we're not there anymore. This is the real world. So I just bombed for a long time and just kept doing it. You know. So did you uh, write this shit by writing local Nashville stuff or just kind of slowly work through what's funny to you and figuring it out as you go. I think as you gradually start to live a more normal life, that stuff comes out, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so just the more I kept doing it and the more I, I had a real got a real job and I was out there, I just started to write stuff that made more sense. 
to people. And then when you go on the road for the first time, like you said, and bomb out there, that'll kick you into gear a little bit. You're like, oh, I'm writing something. I'm like, this will only work in this room. Why am I wasting time on this if it's not going to work, you know, in Jackson, Tennessee? Yeah, and that's that's an interesting angle because there are jokes that you can only do in one spot, and you'll think of those, and you'll you'll do those in one spot. But as you think about comedy as a career – if you keep only doing those jokes, you have to swap those things out every time you hit the road. But to build that, that first act that is, you know, most comics take six, seven years to build that first hour of solid stuff because you're chucking stuff and filling uh-huh. it back in. It takes a while, and you want to find stuff that's going to serve you for a long time. Yeah. And do you ever find yourself not stop writing a bit but try to rework it to where this would work five years from now or two years from now as opposed to just something like topical humor do you find a theme oh, in it, yeah. a more universal theme? I've I've found that um, sometimes I'll be telling a joke and I'm like, oh, this was a little more relevant a while ago. So you just kind of change the way you frame it mm-hmm. to uh, – I got a joke about like – if you have a joke about something that happens in Christmas or something like that, you can just frame that differently so it works all year long. And I haven't been doing it long enough to see how stuff ages – you know, years and years and years, mm-hmm. but, but yeah, I, I'll, I'll waste an hour thinking about this bit that will only work one week at one place in in Nashville. I'm yeah. like, what is this? What is this for? Who's <laughs> yeah. this for? Right. I'm like envisioning the comics in the back of the room laughing, and I'm like, well, they're not going to be at a real show. Yeah. <laughs> you know, this is this is just a waste of time. You know. Well, there, there's that's another good point too. Is I think when I first started, because I had a we had a group of like 20 comics in Columbus when I started and they, and they were, we'd see each other six, seven times a week uh-huh. and we were constantly trying to push each other as far as, you know, if we saw somebody doing the same joke four weeks in a row, we're like, dude, you know, you, you've won with that joke four weeks in a row or whatever. Just put something new in there. We kind of stick on each other for that kind of stuff. But you do kind of start to realize uh, how stuff ages and how, it, how you can reframe it. Like you said, and, and, and keep it, yeah keep it moving along. Um, so, with your process now, you know, every comic has a million different ways to come about jokes. Once you get an idea, though, do you jot something down so you don't forget it and then kind of just marinate on it for a little while? Yeah, I, I jot something down so I don't forget it, and I always tell myself I'm going to revisit this later. But I have a, a notes app on my phone that I'll just open and type down uh, something so I remember what I was thinking about. Sometimes I'm not descriptive enough when I write down, and I can't remember what I thought my great take was. Um, but I'll, I'll, I'll write it down. Then I'll, when I have some alone time, mm-hmm. I pull it up and then I just talk through it out loud. And I found that that is better for me than just writing it down. If, if I just want to talk, talk through it, like I'm telling it to somebody mm-hmm. then in my car or wherever, then the joke will come out that way. Yeah. You'll eventually say something to kind of make yourself laugh. And you're like, that's probably, yeah. Exactly. Um, it, I'm, and then, then I write it down from there, you know, mm-hmm. but it's just talking through it helps me a lot. That's good. Yeah. So yeah. How, how do you work your newer stuff in to make sure it gets a chance to see the light of day? Well, I'll, uh, well, I'll try to. I'm getting better at this now. I used to be so scared of trying new jokes at what I thought were real shows. Mm-hmm. I would only do them at open mics. And then after I'd beaten them into the ground, I was like, okay, now this joke's earned a place in my quote-unquote real set. But now I'm a little more comfortable just wedging these new bits in between 
jokes that mm-hmm. I'm more confident about. And I found that so much of just, so much of it is just if it's a new joke and I'm not confident in it, it'll come out in how I tell it. Oh yeah, I just won't tell it with any confidence. And sometimes the confidence can kind of lift a joke up, yeah. you know. And if you're telling it like you're not sure if it's funny or not, then it probably won't be funny. So that's something I'm trying to get better at. It's just wedging those in and 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 trying to do something new at at, at every show. Yeah, you know? and I think too the other thing that happens if you, if you get too comfortable telling a joke, it loses that confidence, and a joke that was great can be just come pretty good. Yeah, you get diminishing returns on it. I just talked to Killer Bees about this because um, I asked him when I got to work with him in Huntsville a couple weeks ago, I said, how do you keep your jokes from feeling stale to you? Mm-hmm. And basically what I started doing was just finding little ways to tell the joke differently that keep me excited about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, either a new tag or like you word something differently or do the joke in a different place in your act. So you don't just get on autopilot about it, which is, I hate that feeling of just like two minutes go by and I'm like, oh, I'm just listening to myself talk. I I remember I went through a real phase where it was a, it was becoming a problem. I was Mm -hmm. zoning out. I I would, all of a sudden I'd just be listening to myself talking and then I'd freak out about that. And then I've always had this terrible fear of just like snapping and cursing a bunch, Yeah, which I've never done and never will do. I don't even curse that much off stage. Yeah. But I always have this terrible fear of doing that. So all that's going through my head. Right. And then and then uh you know I'll have my set in my back pocket and I'll have this little panic moment of like do you need to reach for your set? Oh, here it comes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you're done, dude. You're this everybody's watching. Oh, they found out you're a fake, you're a phony. You got to reach for your set. So there's all that's going on in like a split second in, that, in your head. Isn't that funny though like the what we think is a, an hour on stage can be a second sometimes. I know. Like, yeah. There was, gosh, there was probably three years where I didn't even, I'd bring water on stage and never, I'd pick it up and put it back down because mm-hmm. I thought if I drank it, they would all leave the room. They would all get up at the wow. same time and just leave. So like, I'd be like. <laughs> they were just looking for an out, oh, looking for man. you to take a drink. I'd be 40 minutes in the show like, I'm parched up here, but I, <laughs> I'd pick it up and just, oh, I can oh, I'd put it back down. Uh-huh. But then you, you know, I like to say now instead of being afraid of the silence, investigate it a little bit. You know, pause once yeah. in a while and see if something's percolating that you were stifling because you mm-hmm. never let the audience react a certain way. And part of that is just being confident in what you're about to say, right? I think it if all you is. know what you're about to say is good and it'll get them back, then you can kind of sit in silence for a little bit. Yeah, that's something I'm trying to get better at too because it feels it feels good. It feels good, yeah. and it looks to the audience like you're in total control, not that you're lost control. Yes. It's the opposite of what's going on mentally. Yes. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. There's so many videos I have of my sets where I remember I'm having this existential crisis on stage. And I look for it in the video, and it's only like a, it's only manifested by just a little twitch or uh-huh. something. And I'm like, oh, I'm dying right there. <laughs> right there. I'm dying on the inside during that. Thank God I can't tell because I only yeah. did a little movement or something. But you're right. It's it, it A split second can feel like, feels like this huge thing. Yep. And the other thing is maybe, you know, the crowd's not, they don't care enough that you care so much more about what you're doing than they do. Oh, yeah. If they, paid, attention, the if they paid a third of attention to us as we are to ourselves. Yes. Yeah, yeah. phenomenal. Yeah, yeah. I was like, oh, man, I, I, I stuttered for a, a second. Like, dude, we don't care. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we don't care about this that much. Yeah. That's yeah. crazy. Yeah, there's so many things that just over time you start to – 
either self-evaluate in the wrong way or the right way. You usually snap out of it when you see it's not serving your set well. Uh-huh. Have you ever, um, and I go through different phases with this all the time, a physical t- tick on stage or distraction that, like, do you have currently one that you're thinking of that you do, or have you seen one in the past? Oh, yeah. Oh, I go through, I go through phases. Um, Ralphie May told me once to watch your set on Fast Forward. Mm-hmm. And then you can so I've done that. I didn't like that. Oh no, that's like, not fun to watch. It's fun to I'm just like <laughs> rocking back and forth basically. Um, yep. Verbal ticks. I don't. I'm not too bad about verbal ticks on stage, but I'll pick up a pick up the glass of water, and then I'm like, why did you pick that up? Then I just put it back down. Or if a joke's not doing well, I'll just start reaching for the stand. I really lean <laughs> oh, on yeah. that stand. Yeah. Yeah, because it, it. I like to. If I'm not confident, I like to put it by my left side and just kind of lean on it because that feels comfortable to me. Uh-huh. But then if I am confident, I'll I'll leave it behind. And it's it's this me chasing my stand around stage. If you're watching it, so so little things like that I'm trying to work on. Yeah, but they're hard. You know, you're scrambling up there. You're trying to do anything. I think for me at least, as soon as I notice one and get it under control, another one develops. Yeah, and I'll do the same thing. I'll watch some videos and fast forward. And there's like a whole summer where I would just like be rubbing my neck and watching that on you know back it looks like i'm so disinterested in my material it's like i'm just gonna give myself a massage while i'm up here because you guys are not providing any joy but then i would get rid of that and the next thing i know i was like scratching my chest for no like uh-huh. it, so i just kind of i've learned over time if to put one thumb in my pocket other one on the microphone and then i notice automatically that, that hand comes out so if i need to for a gesture it's great but when not it goes back and there's like that's my anchor point for that, so it doesn't wander. And then those gestures are more impactful, right, because you're doing them so infrequently? Oh, yeah. And if they serve a joke rather than just, you know, a, a tick. Yeah, and, you know, two comics come to mind when you say that is uh, you watch Dennis Miller. Yeah, sure. Or Ron White. They're not very animated. But when they do move their hand, it's a big indication that something's happening here. Yeah. You know? It's interesting. Everybody's got their different style, but there's always that there's always that nervous tick. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to go back a second and go to something we were talking about. So you're talking about you never cuss on stage or never swear, mm-hmm. never want to. Like, where does where do your values come on that? Was that a conscious decision before you started comedy, or did you notice, hey, it's almost, you know, for me it was semi. You know, I'm, I'm raised Christian, so like I never want to be the guy out there just cussing like mm-hmm. crazy. But then when I was doing comedy, a few things would slip out. But I just noticed for me, like, the audience wouldn't laugh at the stuff because it didn't look like it fit me. Was yeah, it- it's got to be authentic to, to who you are. Yeah. You know? I started – I was clean from the get-go just because I always imagining my parents sliding in the back of the room and watching. <laughs> right. And you just – it's it's embarrassing thinking about them watching. I just brought my parents to the first dirty – I opened for a dirty comic who's not even that dirty. Uh-huh. Um, but it was just so weird watching them watch a dirty comedian. So I never want I never want to have that when they're watching me. And then I just started to get work for being clean. So I was like, you know, I'm gonna keep doing this for a while. I tell young guys if they ask me, not many do, but I always just say, you're doing yourself such a disservice, not being able to work clean. Right. You're missing out on so much work. Because there are so few good, clean comics, and even dirty comics will want clean openers sometimes. So it's like, if you want to become a dirty headliner one day, that's fine. But be able to do 10, 15 minutes clean, 
You know, you're, you're really hurting yourself if you're not. I don't understand these people that you can't write 10 to 15 minutes of clean material to yeah. do on a clean show. It's not that hard. Yeah, and you know? and to even promote your shows, if you're going on radio or TV or these, you yeah. Know, when I saw, you know, Jim Norton done the Tonight Show, mm-hmm. you know, like so even he, <laughs> and it was very, yeah, he barely was able to do it, but he was able to do it, you know, because I mean he is so used to saying whatever he wants on Sirius XM and on his shows, yeah. But to be able to broaden your appeal a little bit, have a little wider reach, a little bit more marketability, and plus, like you say, I mean, I used to work, you know, Robert Schimmel. I don't know if you ever seen, yeah, him. sure. So I used to work with him a lot at the Cleveland Improvs. I'd feature for him. And he just, after every show, he's like, you know, I like you because uh, they haven't heard anything dirty till I get up there. Uh-huh. He goes, sometimes they've heard 45 minutes of filthy. And then it's just me. He goes, I'm confident who I am, but it's just like, it's nothing new. Yeah. And he said, we can, we can work together as much as you want. Uh-huh. So it was like really interesting to me that even a dirty guy would want a clean guy. But you see it all the time. And you then, know, Bill Hicks used to bring Henry Cho on the road to feature with him. I didn't know that. Yeah, he's told me some stories. And if you just think about two totally different acts, yeah, and it was for that same reason. It was, they haven't heard anything by the time I get up there, so everything has more power. Everything has more edge to it. Right. You know? So that, and that's, so that's kind of your thing. You're, you're not going to ever go dirty. And you probably have a couple late-night jokes if you need them. Saturday I've got late stuff. shows. I, I, I've stopped kind of writing that stuff. I don't know. I'll mess around when I'm at Mike's and local mm-hmm. shows. When my friends are there, I'll yeah. mess around a little bit, but I'm never going crazy. Right. I don't see myself doing that ever. I mean, who knows? But um, I don't know. It will be nice to like not worry about that. If you, if I ever get to a point where it's like my crowd coming to see me. I don't ever want to feel like I'm being held to some standard they've set for me. I just want to do like I I'll never be super dirty, but I you know, I'll let out a what the hell every now and then sure. or something like that. I want to be able to do that right. because that's how that's how normal people talk right. for the most part. Right. You know, it's kind of crazy to not to avoid stuff like that. So. Yeah. But I will if I'm on a clean show now, I won't say that. If I'm opening for Henry, I won't say anything like that, yeah. you know. When did you start again in comedy altogether? Um, I mean, started or just they moved to Nashville? That's yeah, kind of two thousand, um, f- the summer of two thousand fifteen. Okay, so a relatively short amount of time, five yeah. years. Yeah. Um, but how many opportunities can you attribute to just being able to be easy to work with and clean? Ninety nine percent of them, right? Yeah, ninety five percent probably. Isn't that nice? Yeah. And it's nice not to have to get on stage and try to rework a joke in, like in the middle of it. Because, mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, this is the dirty joke. i got to clean it up. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And then w- even when I started doing um, some church stuff, which was a new a new world for me, mm-hmm. I was like, I don't have to change a whole lot in my act, you know. Yeah. So, so that was nice. I was like, oh, that's that's a good thing, you yeah. know, for me. So, yeah. Was it last fall you did the John Chris stuff? Or yeah, was- it was all it was last the last year and a half or so, yeah. And most of those were three comic shows? It's a three-comic show, two comics, then an intermission, then mm-hmm. John. And they were like, I'd say half churches, half venues. secular venues, uh-huh. you know? And who are some of the other comics besides John? Did you uh, work with Mike Goodwin? Mike Goodwin, yeah, a lot. I work with Mike Goodwin a One lot. One of my favorite guys. Ever. Yeah, he's so great. Mike Goodwin out of Columbia, South Carolina. Dustin Nickerson mm-hmm. was the other guy. Um it was mostly just the three of us. Yeah. Every now and then, they, they somebody else would come. Andrew Stanley did some shows mm-hmm. with us. 
Uh, that was kind of the core group, though. And was yeah. that the, the first time you got to be in audi- with audiences that size on a regular basis oh, by far? Yeah, huge jump. The the <laughs> The first, the biggest show I'd done before I opened for John was a sold out Zany's show, which is a little over 300, mm. maybe. And then I did a church show with John, and there were 1,500 people. So I remember, I remember thinking this is five times bigger <laughs> yeah. than the biggest show I've ever done. And then the second show I did with John was 6,200 people in Dallas. So I was like, this is, it's wild. Yeah. Um, it was kind of baptism by fire. I just, nobody, nobody tells you how to do a room that big. So what did, what did you learn? I mean, slowing down? Slowing down, your movements need to be, you got to be as big as the room, right? Mm. When you're in a comedy club, you can kind of be subtle and, and, and they're all down by your feet. You can talk to them. You're kind of there, right? But when you're in a room that big, it's like. It's not great for comedy, to be honest with you. Comedy is always better smaller, but your movement's got to be big. You got to the pauses are longer. The timing is so different. It took me a long time to get used to that. Did you find? Because I find this with bigger audiences, and I should apply this to every show. But with bigger audiences, I listen to the audience more mm-hmm. to kind of take my cues from when they've okay, they're done with that, moving along. Well, they behave differently. They they laugh differently. I feel like. Mm-hmm. A club, it just feels different. A club laugh is like they laugh, then they're kind of, all right, they're ready for the next one. But these, if you pause, like a theater, will, you'll feel it trickle down to the back of the room. It's odd. It's hard to explain. Well, it is. It's, it's Even though a theater is one room, you've got the upper level, the sides, the middle. Yeah. So, And I, I find it, I find this in almost everything that's not in a club, even a corporate event, the, the sides and the back, take their cues on whether it was funny from the people in the first five, ten rows. So they see, they hear that laugh, like, oh, it's funny. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's, it's a wave of, uh, I don't even know what, there's probably a, a social term for that, but they're taking their cues from the room itself. So one well, pocket just, in Laughter is a social thing. Yeah. You know, if you watch, you can watch the funniest movie in the world by yourself at home and you don't laugh out loud that much. But if you have two or three friends there, then you're dying laughing. Yeah. It's odd. You know, I don't, I don't, I don't know why it works that way, but that's how it always works. It's an in, in, infectious in the good way. Yes, yeah, <laughs> not not in the way we're dealing with now. No. Well, let me ask you this before we start wrapping up here. Um, so I know you got to do the Grand Ole Opry. It's yeah, phenomenal. It's one of my bucket list things for sure, and uh, I think it's pretty awesome. But did I read on your website you were the youngest comic to do it? Well, as far as we can trace back. So as far as I can trace back, our my friend Dusty Slay. When he did it, he was told he's the youngest to have, the youngest comedian to ever perform there. And then I did it, and I'm younger than him, so I just kind of went off of that. So okay. I didn't do it. <laughs> that hasn't been verified by the Opry. It hasn't been verified by anybody, but it sounds like a cool thing to say. So I'm going to say it for, for a while until somebody younger than me comes no, along I th- and I does think it's it. great. And I think it's great for the Opry to have some fresh blood in there for sure. Oh, thanks, man. And um, Yeah, they've been, they've been really good to me. They saw me um, – I did a show at Zany's with Brad Paisley like two years ago. Mm-hmm. And the guy who is now the president of the Opry was there. We met briefly, and he was like, let's keep in touch. So we kept in touch for like a year and a half, two years. And then I just got an email out of the blue. That's great. Come do it. So you never know who's in the room. That's yeah. one of the weird It's one of the weird things. But. And then the timing of that was the – Opry, after you'd done some John Chris shows, so you're used to some bigger rooms, or was it before? Or? Thank God it came after that. Got gotcha. you. 
Um, so the the Opry is like four thousand mm-hmm. seats, which would have. I mean, it's still a, an enormous room for comedy. It's like, and the setup is kind it's of it's absurd. Yeah, but I had just come off of a run of. I mean, we were doing eight thousand seat churches there for a while. So thank God I got a few of those under my belt. Yeah. And then I, I came out pretty confident at, at the Opry just because I had done rooms that big before. Um, so, yeah, that I, I don't know how I would have done if that if I went from— If that would have come first. If that were my first big show that I'd ever done like that, yeah, that would have freaked me out. Yeah, and those are pretty cool people. I've been backstage at the Opry for some other comics going up. It's awesome, isn't it? Yeah, uh, in fact, yeah. if you ever have an extra ticket and nobody's oh, of course. jumping yeah, on, I'd love if, to come if, see if you. If I get thing. to do it again, yeah, I'd love to have you come yeah. out, man. I just love the whole vibe. I grew up a big country, country guy, but I just— I think uh-huh. it's cool that more comics are getting shots in there. Yeah. Cool. Well, this yeah. could be the last podcast ever. Or I'll be <laughs> doing them all from Zoom, I guess. There you go. You yeah, know. you have to do it. But do I appreciate, it digitally. I really appreciate you coming in. It's uh, AaronWeberComedy.com is your website, and I love the way you did your website. Oh, thanks, And you man. designed that? Did you? I did. I designed it from, from scratch. There. Wow, so you got some computer skills. I used to I used to build websites for money, freelance work. So I built a, a website to look like an old-school MySpace page. Which and the, it looks the, a lot like. Thank you. Know, yeah, the people that get it like it, but the people that don't get it are like, "Your website's terrible." <laughs> and I'm like, "I understand." But yeah, when I first looked at it, I'm like, "I'm like, what?" It's maybe a bad business decision. I've been told that before, but uh, I'm pretty stubborn, so I'm going to leave it there for a while. Yeah, you know? well, that's a whole other podcast as far as what, how you put out your image on on yeah. the internet and stuff. But I think yeah. it's funny. I think oh, thank you. I man. think for what you're doing right now, it's it's hilarious. There's also some clips on there you can check out if you don't know Aaron. Uh, definitely check him out and uh, follow him on you're in Twitter a little bit or you kind of like Twitter a little bit, a little bit more now during all this. Yeah, you know, at real Aaron Weber. That's what I'm at on everything. Though. That's right. In fact, he, I, I saw you on Twitter the other day showing off your DVD collection. You you could last a while <laughs> in a bunker. I'll be good on, in terms of movies for a while. Yeah, I got a pretty big DVD collection, and then I just combined them with my fiance's. And she had a pretty big one too, so we're set for a while. Yeah, and congratulations on that. Too. Thank you, man. You got a date lined it. up, or gonna? Well, did you? Or God willing, the world doesn't end, but we're <laughs> gonna do uh, Memorial Day weekend next year. All right, twenty twenty one. And instead of uh, you may now kiss the bride, it's give an elbow bump. <laughs> <laughs> Standing six feet from each other <laughs> in the right. aisle. Oh, that's hilarious. Yeah, yeah. that's great. Hopefully, well, that's all over with by then. I hope so. Hope we've got the uh, the thing under control. And yeah. Phew. There's some population left to go to a show. <laughs> oh that is bleak. Uh, yeah. We'll end on the bleak note. <laughs> there you go. Thanks, buddy. Thank you, Rick. Appreciate it, man. Hope you enjoyed that interview with Aaron Weber. Young fella out there doing the work, getting the gigs, staying clean and easy to work with definitely helps, as he said right there. So, very cool. Thanks, Aaron, for joining us today. Thanks again to Paul Swan for sponsoring the podcast through Patreon. If you feel like this podcast in general has helped you out over the years, you know, 213 some episodes into it, feel free to sponsor the podcast through Patreon. You can go to schooloflast.com forward slash P-A-T-R-E-O-N and learn how you can do that. A small recurring monthly donation gets you an email every single week as part of Club 52 if you contribute at $7 a month or more. And that Club 52 is like a mini class. Not even a mini class. It's a big class. It's 52 lessons on how you can get your comedy, your career, your marketing, your business, your performing, all up to standards. And uh, that's doled out one email at a time, so you can actually have time to take action on those things. Again, check that out, schooloflast.com forward slash Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Don't forget to stop by schooloflast.com for more fun. Y'all take care. 
Thanks, Doc Kennedy, for editing. Stay safe and stay funny. Thanks for listening to the School of Laughs podcast. If you'd like to hear more School of Laughs podcasts, you can find them on iTunes and Stitcher.com. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. For information on upcoming live and online classes, visit SchoolofLaughs.com. Until next time, stay tuned, stay focused, and stay funny.